0: So, we're going to be teaching on another uh, fundamental lesson this morning, um, one that I've wanted to talk about for a while. Um, it's probably one of the most important concepts that Jesus emphasized in his ministry uh, very regularly. And it's a concept and a command that's reflected on and re emphasized in the epistles uh, very frequently. It's dying with Jesus. You know, and when we're talking about what it means to identify God, and how do we identify with God? How do we, how do we recognize God? How do we make sure we're in union with God? You know, that's the key question uh, that we need to really ask ourselves: is how do we, how do we understand who God is? How do we know Him? How do we ensure that we're we're in fellowship with Him? And what I want to do in this lesson is really focus on Jesus' suffering on the cross. And in that, focusing on the thief on the cross. um, The thief on the cross is a uh, very misunderstood account. Um, Usually in the world around us, the only time we hear about the thief on the cross is when somebody is often trying to affirm that baptism cannot be necessary for salvation because you don't see baptism with the thief um, the ironic thing at the end of the lesson, you um, going to see how actually the thief on the cross's example, the example of the thief really proves the necessity of baptism because we die with Jesus just like the thief died with Jesus. So the principle relates, but uh, there's more lessons than that. And I think the beauty and the significance of the lessons that are in the thief's confession of who Jesus was at that time The beauty of that account, just like so many passages that get misunderstood in the world around us, it's easy to miss the depth of what can be gained. So that'll be the goal of the lesson. And just to emphasize just very quickly the importance of this concept, 2 Timothy 2, 1, Paul said, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. So this is a trustworthy statement. So this is like an absolute. There's no getting around it. If if we want to live with Jesus, this is the only way it's going to happen. We have to die with him first. Jesus in his ministry said this in a variety of ways. One way is in John 12, when he's talking about himself, almost like a grain of wheat falling into the ground to die and then bear fruit. He mentions, he who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus is emphasizing he's going to die. And through his death, that of necessity will open the gate for people to follow him where he was going, right? And in Luke 9, uh, similarly, Jesus famously talks about discipleship, and he talks about taking up our cross daily and following him. And at the end of that statement, he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So this is this is fundamental. And we really need to make sure that we understand What does it actually mean to die with Jesus? And how can we ensure, again, that we're understanding how to apply that into our lives so that we're not falling into the very easy trap of serving God half-heartedly or simply serving God out of convenience? So, like I said, I want to focus on the crucifixion. And all of these points are going to be based on the cross. We're going to be looking at Matthew 27, just to set the scene. And then we're going to be transitioning to Luke chapter 23, to really begin to focus on the thief and his, his response. Um, but, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27, we're going to start in verse 38. But just to set the scene, I want you to imagine how incredible the scene was that the thieves would have found themselves in being crucified with Jesus. You imagine how shocking this scene would be? Hundreds, maybe thousands of people screaming, angry, hysterical, You know, I imagine that crucifixion in the Roman territory, you know, it was a somewhat common uh, but excruciating punishment of execution, but it was somewhat common. And I I imagine that there really had never been a scene quite like this with someone who was being crucified. And if you were a thief, just imagine how scared you would be, how scared you would be being led to your crucifixion and Being led to your execution in a way that you knew this was going to be a long, drawn out process of death. But as you're being led to your crucifixion, one of the most horrifying ways to die, how strange it would be that as you're being led to your death, nobody's actually focused on you. Everybody is focused on Jesus. You imagine how this would look. Jesus has already been abused for hours, he's gotten no sleep, he's been punched, he's been kicked. He's been slapped, he's been spit on, he's been whipped, he's been scourged. You know, see, imagine at this point how horrifying Jesus' appearance would be. And as you see Jesus, everybody's talking to him, everybody's talking about him, everybody's talking at him, and there are many people who are actually doing everything they can to provoke him, uh, both in the trials leading up to his crucifixion, but even in the journey, and then obviously when he's crucified. And you imagine how strange it would be that the dre- the best dressed people are all there. Uh, the people you would never see at such a grisly scene. People who would never be seen at a crucifixion. The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious elite. Not only not only are there are they there. They're like in the front. And not only are they there and in the front. They are the most instigating. They are the most loud. They are the people who are trying the hardest to provoke him. And so you imagine, again, how strange this would be that there are hundreds, maybe thousands of people who are here for this scene. Everybody's talking at Jesus and trying to provoke him. And the people that you would never see in a scene like this are actually the most violent in the way that they're trying to get a rise out of Jesus. So what we're going to be doing is... um, Sorry, this this was meant to actually already be up there. Um, These are the points that were just made. Um, But we're going to be looking specifically here in verse uh, 38 through 44. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the confessions of the crowd. What were they saying to Jesus to provoke him when he was crucified? And this will lead us into Luke chapter 23. So let's start in verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So I just want to think about these statements they made. So back in verse 40, first thing they say here as it's recorded, they're saying, you who are going to destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it, or destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Did Jesus ever say this? Did Jesus ever claim he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? You know, the Gospels record the fact that this was actually the claim that led to his condemnation when he was put on trial before the Jewish people. Really, there's only one Gospel, though, where Jesus actually is recorded as saying this statement. Where do you think in Jesus' ministry, how early on do you think it was where this was said? In John's Gospel, in John chapter 2, what seems like the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes into the temple. And what he finds is the temple has been made into a place of business. And really, the people doing this business are making a sham of worship. You imagine the temple is supposed to be a place where people come to pour their hearts out to God, where people are to contemplate God's glory, they're to contemplate their need for God and their condition, they're to contemplate the the glory of his mercy, the power of his atonement, the system that he's created to bring people close to him. And you have people yelling about merchandise, trying to sell their product, trying to get people to do business with them. God is trying to get people to humble themselves in view of him. And when Jesus cleanses the temple, they ask him for a sign of authority, which even by that point, it was, it was obvious uh, who Jesus was, the disciples in the previous chapter. As they were introduced to Jesus, they quickly recognized he's the king of Israel. So I mean it it was obvious. It's an insincere question, actually, even though on the surface it seems like a sincere question. But he told them that the sign of his authority would be that he would, re- he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And it says that he said this in reference to his own death, and the disciples later remembered this. So this is something he did say, and, and everybody knew this. Everybody remembered this. This was a statement early in his ministry, and people considered and contemplated this so deeply that even at the end of his life now three years later people have it fresh in their minds that he claimed he would restore destroy the temple and rebuild it verse 40 if you are the son of god come down from the cross did jesus ever teach that he was the son of god he did Especially in John's gospel, you see again and again and again, Jesus affirms his closeness with God. In John chapter 10 specifically, they, they pick up stones to stone him because he's clearly claiming that he's God's son, and he asks them a question about the Psalms, which talks about people being called sons of God. And so Jesus, he did affirm that he was a son of God, and really the idea is Jesus was continuously emphasizing his unique closeness with god and again this should have been something that was very obvious in in its truth in john chapter 5 jesus invited them to think about uh, the testimony of his works of john the baptist of moses and the scriptures the testimony of god's word and the law He, he had this a plethora of testimony all pointing to the fact clearly he was in the most intimate communion with the father and Jesus and John's gospel referred to God as his father more than any other gospel combined. So Jesus claimed he was the son of God. In verse 42, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Did Jesus save others? In Acts chapter 10 verse 38, Paul summarizes Jesus life by saying he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Um, At the end of John's gospel in John chapter 21, he ends the gospel by saying if everything that Jesus did in his short period of ministry, if all these good things that Jesus did were written down point by point, John's claim is that the world itself would not be able to contain the amount of books that would be written about Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, he was doing good. People... People were risen. People were raised from the dead by Jesus. There are three people Jesus raised from the dead. In Luke seven, there was a widow's son who was publicly raised by the dead, or raised from the dead by Jesus. In John eight, another public event, you had Jairus's daughter raised from the dead. In John chapter eleven, the most public event at the end of his life, he raised Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been four days in the tomb. And even the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they couldn't deny that this miracle had taken place. And so because people were going to see Lazarus and hearing about this, their solution was they were actually wanting to kill Lazarus to remove the evidence, right? All throughout Jesus' life, countless people came to him broken, came to him in need, came to him for forgiveness. And anybody who came to Jesus, he mended them and made them whole. Countless people were saved by Jesus in various ways and in perfect ways. And not only could they not deny that he had done these good things, this became a weaponized accusation against him. Everywhere Jesus went. Even the most socially isolated people. In Luke chapter 18, when Jesus is passing through Jericho, There's a blind man named Bartimaeus. He's homeless, he's blind, he's a beggar. Even blind Bartimaeus sees that Jesus is a son of David, is the son of David, begs Jesus for mercy loudly, and Jesus heals him and gives him sight, and he joins Jesus' crowds of people who are following him, giving praise to God. Everybody knew about Jesus. Even the most socially isolated people were saved and touched and changed by Jesus and his ministry verse 42 as well um, he is the king of Israel did Jesus ever teach that he was the king of Israel well if you remember the scene of the cross in three languages written above his head this is the king of the Jews and the Pharisees the scribes the religious elite they said don't, don't write he's the king of the Jews Right? he said he's the king of the Jews because they didn't want to admit that that's who he was, but that that's the claim he was being crucified for. Um, Jesus was obviously teaching that he was a king. From the very beginning of his ministry, the message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' whole ministry was focused not just on the good news that people would be delivered from sin and that we need atonement and forgiveness, but that the king had finally come and his kingdom was finally coming. Even Pilate... Pilate questioned Jesus about him being a king, and Jesus even affirmed his question, which was an affirmation, a confession. He says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am. And by that confession, Jesus is crucified. There is the beginning of an inference here. Now we're going to see with his last accusation in verse 43. Would a worldly king allow himself to be treated in this way? Would a worldly king allow himself to be treated in this way? You know, you think about the kings of the world. Imagine a king in the world like a king, a true king. Imagine at a meal a true king who has authority and a kingdom dropping his fork at mealtime and his servants immediately coming, grabbing the fork off the floor, and apologizing to him for the mistake, right? Because a true king would never condescend, would never lower himself to this. This is unimaginable that a king would ever do anything like this. So if you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross then. So the final confession in verse 43, he trusts in God. Let him now rescue him. And notice he says as well, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. There it is again. Did Jesus show in his life that he trusted in God? Did he show in his life that he had faith in God? Do you think that you could be around Jesus for even ten minutes and not be struck, not understand that Jesus had such a deep and profound trust in God that it was unlike anything else you'd ever seen in your life. The way that he taught, the way that he spoke and interacted with people, the way that he interacted with his enemies, where he based his ministry and focused his ministry, the way that he prayed, his disciples asked him to help them to pray, the way that he suffered wrongdoing, the way that he responded kindly to persecution and reproach. Could you be around Jesus for even ten minutes and not recognize his faith in God was unlike anything you had ever experienced before or even heard about in the law of Moses and the prophets? So these are things that everybody knew about Jesus. And again, there's an insinuation here that's against God. If Jesus is a king, if he trusts in God, if Jesus is the Son of God, And if Jesus can be called his son, then there's no way that God would ever allow anything like this to ever happen to his own son. There's no way that God could endure his son being put through these circumstances. And notice in verse 44, even the robbers who had been crucified with him were insulting him with the same words. Jesus at this point I think this is important to understand. He had been provoked now for three hours on the cross. Verse 45 will mention that it's the sixth hour. And in Mark 15, verse 25, it mentions that Jesus uh, was crucified at the third hour. So three hours now. I don't know if you've ever had siblings or people in your life where they knew how to push your buttons. You know, like I've had people in my life where they try to get aroused out of me, but they just don't know me very well. So, like, what they're saying, it's just not. Like, there's no reason for me to get upset because what they're saying, there's, there's no connection. But don't you think about people who, they, they know how to hurt you. They know what to say to get you angry or to grieve you. You know, these statements, they just kind of seem like confessions of the crowd and, you know, Jesus is Jesus, uh, whatever. But, you know, here's the thing. It doesn't take long if somebody really knows me and they, they understand how to hurt me. You know, maybe like a few minutes, you know, and I end up responding or getting discouraged or getting angry. Jesus had already been provoked in these ways for hours. He's not gotten sleep. You imagine his appearance by this time is unrecognizable. Isaiah mentions his appearance was marred more than that of any man. For three hours. So you imagine people are anticipating, what's he gonna do? What's he gonna say? So I want you to imagine now, everybody's focused on Jesus, everybody's screaming at him, everybody's wagging their heads at him, everybody's abusing him, and you imagine Jesus shifting his weight, taking a breath, and it's like, oh, he's, he's going to say something finally. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Uh, we're going to start in verse 33 and just look at this, 34, and then skip to verse 39 here. But you imagine again how, how much you'd be anticipating Jesus' response. You know, and how you'd be waiting for him to break, you'd be waiting for him to fail in some way. And in verse 34, when he's crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then they cast lots, dividing his garments. Imagine how shocking it would have been to hear Jesus say something like this. Imagine even how disappointing it may have been to hear him say something like this. Instead of cursing, instead of arguing, instead of trying to bargain or justify himself, instead he uttered no threats, did not revile in return, but he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody getting mocked or abused or slandered. Maybe it's not something you personally heard. Maybe it's something you saw from a figure on the news or something. I don't know if you've ever been shocked at someone's response, like surprised at how they were responding to abuse. Like in a way that caused you to pause and gave you reflection, right? I think this statement would have begun to break something in certain people who are here in this crowd. And before we we move on, there's a couple things I want to consider. One is, on the board here, for Jesus' words to be fulfilled, you know, praying that God extend mercy and not hold this against them, this, this meant something. This wasn't just some general statement like, yeah, God, you know, forgive them. What this meant for Jesus is that the suffering was going to need to continue and go further. Things, things were going to need to get a lot worse in order for this to be true. So you imagine Jesus is so focused on the condition of the people crucifying him. He's so much on their side that he's actually actively throwing himself away right in front of them in order to continue to advocate for them and be on their team. So who does the offer of this kind of mercy appeal to? Who does a statement like this ultimately end up appealing to? And that leads us to the next section. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So we'll, we'll look more at the other thief in a moment. But I want to think about this question with both of the thieves here. How did this thief see Jesus? Like, based on what he said, did you really know him? You know, obviously he's questioning, you know, are you not the Christ? So it seems like he's pretty convinced. I mean, you think about what the crowd is saying, Jesus' ministry. You know, so, I mean, isn't that who you are? So then how come you don't save us? His view of Jesus is Jesus ought to rescue him from the suffering of the cross. I mean, Jesus has saved so many other people so freely and so mercifully and so graciously. Why stop now? Here's just another circumstance of deliverance. So deliver us all. He wrongly assumed Jesus' endorsement. The less we know Jesus, the less we know Jesus, the more we presume he endorses us. You know, you, you see this in a lot of ways. I think religiously you see this in some pretty obvious ways. You think about churches with their various ministries, people having their social ministries or whatever they do, and you know, various ways of worship, people doing things in general that the Lord never asked for. And just far too quickly presuming God is endorsing this, right? So the less we know the Lord, the more we presume his endorsement. The more we know the Lord, we like Jesus, we don't assume his endorsement. Instead, just as Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the more we know the Lord, the more it shifts our understanding of his approval to humble us. And so here I think is something very important that I really want to focus on with both of the thieves. He didn't recognize the value of his suffering or the value of the consequences he was suffering for his sin. You know, there's, again, a thinking similar to this first point, that God's responsibility is to deliver me from every discomfort, that as soon as I'm sick, have financial trouble, have bodily discomforts, have financial difficulties, you know. have some kind of you know, thorn in the flesh of, of any kind. God, deliver me from this now. God, take this away from me. And I mean, we need to handle this carefully. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, after he had been devoted to the Lord for what seems like a fair amount of time, when the thorn of the flesh that he had suffered was uh, causing him to suffer in whatever way that it was, I mean, he prayed, you know, God, take this away from me. So it's not necessarily a sign of some grave immaturity wanting to be delivered from trial, but it is a sign of maturity. It is a sign of maturity. When we no longer seek to escape from our trials, when we no longer presume that the worst thing that could ever happen to us is discomfort or loss, and we begin to see the beauty of the trials that we suffer in the present life. God's will may not be to deliver us from everything. God's will may not be to deliver us from financial instability, physical trials. It may be that he's working through those things in very necessary and good ways. I want you to think about this in contrast to Jesus. This thief didn't want to take responsibility for his sins. Jesus, though, in innocence, submitted submitted to the Jews... He let them slap him and spit on him and blaspheme him and and abuse him. He submitted to Pilate and Pilate scourging him. He submitted to the Romans who then tortured him and mocked him. He submitted to the crowds leading him to the cross. He submitted to the nails driven into his hands and feet. So Jesus who had not done anything wrong was submitting to everybody and the thieves who had done everything wrong were submitting to nobody. And there's this irony in the text There's an irony in the accounts. Those who don't know the Lord, they don't want responsibility for their actions. As we know the Lord, as we know him more, more and more we recognize that the consequences we suffer are good because it's consequences that change our hearts. The worst thing that could happen is when we get away with sin. The best thing that can happen to us is to get caught and face the consequences. Consequences cause us to pause. Consequences cause us to to reflect. Getting away with sin emboldens poor behavior. It hardens our hearts. It is a horrible burden to get away with sin. It is a horrible burden to get away with sin. So the other thief's perspective. Let's look at 40 through 43. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. So what was the thief's perspective here? How did he see Jesus and did he know him? The way he viewed Jesus, he saw Jesus as a king who was submitting willfully to suffering innocently. And that really changed his perspective. You know, Matthew's account, I am persuaded that it's true when it says the thieves, plural, were abusing him with the same words as everybody else but something something broke something changed in him as he continued to consider what was happening as he considered what was being said and as he considered how Jesus was handling himself fearing god causes me to understand that whatever it takes to change my heart is a good thing fearing god completely changes my view of suffering whatever it takes change my heart Paul said it in the book of Acts he went into a city where he had just been stoned and you imagine how battered and bruised he would look and he begins solemnly exhorting them through many trials we must enter the kingdom of God and it's our fear of God it's seeing Jesus and seeing his suffering it's understanding him in his suffering that changes our perspective to know that when we suffer it may very well be the most needful thing that God works through to bring us closer to him. We'll look more at this as we progress through the lesson. How easy would it have been for him to keep his mouth shut? You know, I think it's interesting that he opened his mouth and rebuked the other thief who he had just been joining with. Imagine how easy it would be to think, you know, well, I'd be a hypocrite if I opened my mouth. But seeing Jesus emboldened him, And do you think if we saw things from God's perspective, that we would see that the very thing that we run away from, the things that we've participated in the past, when we suffer for God's will, when we suffer for sin, do you think if if God could just open our eyes, that we may very well see that the things we are most tempted to run away from are the very things that God is able to most powerfully work through for his glory? So the question before we continue on in the next point, was the cross the best thing that ever happened to the thief? Was the cross the best thing that had ever happened to this man in his entire life? Did the cross liberate him? You imagine Jesus on the cross was a man of a few words, and you imagine again people you know, hanging on seeing him you know, move his body and desperately try to take a breath. And you imagine him looking at the thief, they're making eye contact, and he gives him the reassurance that he'd be with him in a matter of hours in paradise. The thief was crucified with Christ and he found liberty in that. So let's look at 44 through 49. It was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle when they observed what had happened began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Something really important that I think is is necessary to consider here, is that nobody saw what they wanted. You know, the people who were just silently watching and grieving as he was crucified, who weren't advocating his death or screaming at him to get down from the cross, you know, nobody saw what they wanted. Nobody walked away feeling good. Nobody got to see Jesus fail. You know, and that was the one thing that the best-dressed people desperately wanted to see. And so even the joy they had in finally getting to put their hands on Jesus and abuse him, finally getting to humiliate him openly, that joy was taken away. And the fact that when he died, they did not see him fail. So everybody was left with mixed emotions. You look at verse or 48 when they're beating their breasts. Their idea is they're left with an unresolved conflict and, and a somber sense of having to deal with what had just happened and not having any solution. Everybody was left with unresolved guilt, good guilt, good guilt. That in Acts chapter 2, where we'll look in just a moment, that their consciences were ready to be pricked by the message of the Lord's resurrection. You know, the temple system wasn't, it wasn't designed to take care of a sin like this. There was no animal sacrifice that you could bring to the priest for something like this and walk away feeling like God had absolved your conscience and forgiven you. There was nothing like that that God had given. So for weeks, for over a month, people were just left. Even after hearing about the Lord being risen, there's still this unresolved conflict that they were responsible for the King of Kings being crucified on a cross So I want to think about how how does God turn this into good news? I want to think about the good news of the kingdom and who this appeals to. You think about the thief who saw that Jesus was a king of a kingdom. You know, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he saw that Jesus was willingly suffering and and he was surrendering to death. So you have to think if Jesus was a king, if he was the Messiah, if he was the Christ, and he's allowing His own people to crucify him and abuse him and blaspheme him to the point of death. Why is he doing these things? Why is he choosing to do this? Why? The only answer can be that he's not a king of the world, that his kingdom is not of the world, and that his death is not just pointless, but that Jesus ultimately was not just dying for the nation. He was suffering for him. And the thief recognized that what Jesus was enduring was the endurance that leads to redemption. At the, and the redemption that Jesus was suffering for wasn't something worldly or presently. It was something that was meant to redeem people into a kingdom that is based in heaven. And Jesus confirmed the promise of that kingdom when he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So why is this such a powerful message? Think about John 3.16. Because it's not just that Jesus was so filled with love when he was dying. In John 3.16 it says, For God, the Father, the Father so loved the world that he sent Jesus, his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's a message of God subjecting his own Son to this Form of humiliation and degradation, God condescending and lowering himself and causing his son to suffer to make an appeal. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This is the main point of emphasis that concludes the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God the Father has made him the one who rules and the one who rescues. The message of the cross is that Jesus is a king, but that as a king, his love reveals that God is willing to freely advocate for us to transfer us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved Son. In Acts chapter 3 verse 26, the same point is emphasized that God was sending Jesus to turn us all from our wicked ways and to bless us, that Jesus is a king who himself rules and rescues. The cross has the power to completely convert and change. Something we've looked at a lot in these lessons on identifying with God is that the cross is the power of God that the gospel contains a message that is able to completely change and completely convert. So how could somebody change that fast? We live in a world where change is shocking. Change is something that doesn't seem even possible to a degree. You know, and oftentimes the kind of change that we see God promise in the world can seem impossible. How could God ever do that to change people from one nature to another so completely? It's sad that the world considers it to be impossible to change the way that Jesus changes people. It's sad that people don't see that they can be changed in the way that God promises if they'll simply recognize Christ and the power of the cross. The thief was able to change because he recognized who Jesus was. He considered what was happening that Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords was surrendering for his sake and for the sake of the crowds and for all peoples, Jesus was willing to lay down every right, every privilege, every comfort. He showed that his faith was not in his reputation, it was not in his comfort, his faith was not in his own power, in his own sense of justice, but his trust was completely in God's love and in the mission to extend mercy to the people that he had chosen. So the concluding question then, to what degree have you been converted? To what degree have you been converted? Jesus' death is the anchor of our faith. It's it's what begins our walk with God. It's what fulfills and sustains and completes our walk with God. The cross is our anthem. It's, It's our foundation. It's our banner, our cornerstone. And if Jesus... If what he is to you is like a hobby or a good idea to have sometimes, or like a genie who gives you gifts at times when you need it or ask for it, or just like a pillow to give you comfort when you feel sad or down, if that's all Jesus is to you, that's just, it's not enough. God gave Jesus to suffer and die so that we, like Paul, would see him so clearly that we would recognize living a life that is in any way given to the kingdoms of this world, life that is lived by my own will, when I'm the Lord of my will in any way, Jesus came to show that there's nothing more fulfilling, nothing that gives more joy than living completely under the will of the King who reigns in heaven. As Paul said, it's no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. It's Christ who lives in me. If you want to respond to the gospel this morning, God is revealed as a truth that we die with Christ. We begin our walk with God one way. In Acts chapter 2, the people were pricked to the heart and they said, Well, what shall we do? And they were told clearly, Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We must be buried with Christ, we must die with him in baptism to live with him forever the ultimate thing that the thief perceived nothing mattered to him anymore except being with Jesus nothing nothing mattered anymore all he wanted was to be with Jesus and if that meant dying with Jesus so be it if you see that nothing in life matters anymore except being with Jesus God has given a way of reconciliation and that again is through baptism And if you're here and you see that there are things in your life that are preventing you from honoring Christ's death, you're not living for him or attached to him as you wish or as you need to be, now is a time to bring those things forward before the church as we stand and sing the invitation song.